0: it's podcasting time. This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan, the podcast. As always, I am your host, Jonathan Isaacson. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places. And while you're there, please rate the podcast, give it a review, and please share the podcast with a friend or two. So this is episode two of the story of the leftist radicals who ended up in a mountain lodge with a hostage in 1972. And just a reminder that this is the episode uh, that we're going to encounter some extreme violence and death. Um, But I mean, I have no terribly graphic descriptions of the violence and death, but we will be talking about that in at least some detail. So if you'd rather not... I mean, well, I won't take it personally, and we'll see you in episode three. And if you haven't listened to episode one, and are listening to this first, episode two, I mean, what are you, some kind of weirdo? I mean, I guess, whatever, live your life how you want, you know, make a hamburger with two patties of meat and a slice of bread in the middle, but, you know, whatever, but, you know, put ketchup on your hot dogs. I won't judge you, I mean, at least not out loud. Out loud but you're still a weirdo. I mean, if you really, really don't want to go back and listen, just remember that, well, just know, I should say, if you're not listening, you won't remember, just know that there were all these different leftist groups in Japan, the late 1960s, early 1970s, you know, the New Left, as it was known. The New Left was tired of the Old Left. So, right, the Communist League, well, actually, the Communist the Communist League, they're kind of a... they're proto-New Left I guess they're, they're kind of the, the bridge between they're partially Old Left, partially New Left but yeah, the Communist League um, no relation to the Human League as far as I know but anyway, sorry 80's music reference anyway, the Old Left was say like, the Communist League, the Communist Party of Japan and in the eyes of the New Left, they weren't doing enough, they weren't taking direct action They were all talk and no fight, basically, according to the New Left. And so you have these New Left groups out pulling off capers and heists, like the Red Army Faction and their Operation M, getting the money, and the Revolutionary Left taking a bunch of guns and ammo from a gun shop in Tochigi. And so that is where we left off last time. Um, Let's get back into it. So the Red Army Faction, which, incidentally, is also the English name for the German, uh, the Bader-Meinhof Gang. Um, if you don't know about them, go look them up. Um, but, yeah, so the, the Red Army Faction is the English translation of the actual name, the official name of the Bader-Meinhof Gang. And I doubt that that's coincidence that these two groups end up being the Red Army Faction in their respective languages. Um Anyway, so the Red Army faction and the revolutionary left, those are the two groups that we're talking about, were emerging in the late 1960s with all of this stuff happening in Japan. All these student protests, uh, protests over the construction of Narita Airport, a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, typical leftist protest stuff, things to protest. I mean, the same kinds of things you would expect from any leftist group in any country in the world. Now, initially, Membership in the Red Army faction, one of these two groups, peaked at, you know, 300 or at least around 300 people in 1969. But through a bunch of poorly planned actions, their numbers very quickly dwindled. Even their success, um, which I mentioned last time, right? The hijacking that they flew to North Korea, right? With the, with the former member of the noise, Noise, the, the noise rock, the psych rock band, All right? That was the Red Army the Red Army faction, and that was their success, but that cost them feet on the ground in Japan. They lost members going to North Korea, so they're not in Japan to do their actions anymore. And so by 1971, the Red Army faction was a lot smaller than it had been two years prior. And the revolutionary left, um, they were of a similar size, right? The combat members, right? They had these combat uh, divisions. The combat groups, for, for the combat members for both these groups, they were in the low double digits. You know, a dozen, maybe 20 for each group. But, I mean, the exact number's not all that important. Just know, it's it's a few people. It's not a big group. And as I mentioned... In the first episode, the Red Army faction, the revolutionary left, despite some ideological differences, decided to pool their resources. And at this point, you know, 1971, the groups both had their own separate mountain hideouts for training and just generally laying low. I believe the Red Army faction, they had their place in the mountains of Yamanashi, which is kind of west pretty much straight west from Tokyo. And the revolutionary left had a base in Gunma, which is a little bit to the northwest of Tokyo. And both of them are they're getting into the mountainous regions of that part of Japan. They're both still kind of the general Kanto. Kanto is the, the area around Tokyo. So they're, Gunma and Yamanashi are both part of the general Kanto region, but they're not the center of the Kanto region anymore. They're kind of getting to the mountainous areas. They're they're both part of the Kanto region, but they're getting far enough away that you're in the mountains. And if you've ever been in the mountains, you know that they're not an easy place to be found if you know what you're doing. If you want to hide in the mountains, great place to hide if you know how to avoid detection. Say, despite the fact that, you know, Yamanashi Gunma... Very easily accessible from Tokyo. You know, people commute from Gunma and Yamanashi to work in downtown Tokyo. So they're not in Tokyo, but they're in the general area, but they're in the mountains. Now, both factions had espoused their support for the use of violence to support their causes. But the revolutionary left were, even by the standards of the furthest left of the new left, movement violent like extremely so the leadership had ordered the execution of defectors earlier in 1971 and those executions were carried out total gangland shit going down here right and as I say by 19 late 90, late 1971 the two groups decided to fully join their two groups and become the United Red Army. And they decided to meet at the Revolutionary Left's base in Gunma, um, near Mount Haruna, if you've ever been to the area. Um, If you're driving on the the expressway, the the interstate, not interstate, the the expressway, um, out of Tokyo towards Niigata, you go right past Mount Haruna. Um, Now, it's also worth noting here that Mori Tsuneo, uh, he was the leader of the Red Army faction. He would later, he would go on to become, once they joined, he became the first in command of this new united Red Army. The names are confusing, I'm sorry. Um, the new group is the United Red Army. Just remember that. And Mori Tsuneo became the first in command of the new group. Mori had actually deserted the... Red Army faction, the group, or the, other, the, the one of the two groups. He had deserted the group in 1969 due to a lot of infighting. But due to a, you know, a very, a major dwindling of numbers, by 1971, the Red Army faction had called him back. Um, and so Igorashi, the historian, I, I talked about Igorashi, his article, um, in the first episode, a lot. I'm going to use his article. His article is very useful for this part of the story. Igarashi noted uh, he noted that in a way, because Morty had deserted and rejoined, he had to reprove his dedication to the cause. And he's quoting here: the guilt he felt about his defection made him embrace the Red Army's advocacy for violent acts. For him, backing down from violence was no longer an option. And that's that's going to foreshadow a lot of what happens over the next couple of months. And so in November, the Red Army faction moved to the revolutionary Left Gunla base, and in December of 71, they began their training sessions as the newly formed United Red Army. And it was during this training that the group's philosophy... I don't know if you can call it a philo- their way of thinking... Um, whatever you want to call it, it started to get batshit levels of crazy and violent. So, the group embraced the idea of self-critique, self-criticism. In, in particular, as it was practiced by Mao in China. Okay, now, it, I should say, it had some major differences you know, the way the Red Army, United Red Army was doing it and how it was used in Mao's China. So the whole idea of this whole, this self-critique, self-criticism is that people who are not communist enough, right? People who are not towing the party line completely must undergo sessions of essentially torture. Um, some of it, sometimes it's psychological torture, sometimes it's physical torture to be made to recognize the error of their ways. Now, in China, it was largely used against people who were deemed enemies of the state, you know, people who were some sort of a threat to the power of the communist leadership, basically. With the United Red Army, the self-criticism was about making sure that the members were sufficiently and truly committed to the cause. And that included being willing to die for the cause. So maybe even like a purer, you know, distillation of the idea of Mao's self-critique. Because I, I think that was probably the idea behind the self-critique in, in Mao's China, but that's not how it was actually put into practice. Um, with the United Red Army, they were saying, this is you are proving your willingness to die for the cause, to show you are truly committed to our cause. And so these self-critiques would very often include physical beatings being willing to be beaten even to death showed true commitment to the cause while also transforming the members now i'm going to quick say i'm going to quote a lot in this section from uh yoshikuni igarashi's paper um because he does a really good job of summarizing this um so like i say if you really want to check it out check in the show notes um it's very readable. Don't be scared. It's an academic article, but it's very readable. Again, so let's quote here from Igarashi. By offering their own possible death as pawns, United Red Army members tried to transform themselves into killing machines devoid of all human concerns and fears. They managed to dehumanize not only their target, the policeman, but also themselves, denying all emotional and physical needs was within, within their revolutionary struggles there was no longer any room for living yeah and kind of the extension of this is that if members showed any desire for creature comforts right if they showed that they were somehow still tied to their bourgeois desires it meant that they needed to undergo a self-criticism session, and at the same time that you know they're they're having to prove their own their own uh, their commitment to the cause and their own lack of desire of human normal human desires and need wants. At that same time, Mori Tsuneo, the leader, in particular, he was really elevating weapons right he was the weapons that they were training with he was elevating them to a very kind of a crazy level and again i'm going to quote from igarashi's paper um and he so it starts off with a quote from igarashi then it moves into a quote from mori the the leader of the red army uh the united red army so yeah here we go mori Tsuneo provided a rather dubious theoretical ground for the necessity of instilling life into guns. Nagata Hiroko, the leader of the revolutionary left, recalls the rather theatrical explanation that Mori gave on the war of annihilation with guns during a joint training session. So Here's Mori. Namekata, think about the rifle that you are holding right now. What kind of gun was that? It was just a dead gun which was originally displayed at a gun shop and later used to shoot birds for pleasure. However, once it was snatched away by our hands, this dead gun began to grow and became a gun we can forcefully gain control over. If one possessed it as a mere weapon or hid it in the attic, its growth would stop, and it would not serve our struggle in strengthening our unity and gaining genuine communist subjectivity. It would be pitiful for the gun, in order to strengthen our unity and to gain genuine communist subjectivity, you must begin the battle of annihilation. Only then will you transform yourself into revolutionary soldiers who fight the battle of annihilation, while the gun in your possession will transform itself into a gun for the battle of annihilation. The gun does not change you. You change the gun. For that, you need to transform yourself into a revolutionary soldier who can engage in the battle of of annihilation so yeah that ha- that that was um, that was what morty apparently said and so you've got this dynamic where you have right the revolutionaries they are elevating guns to like an almost almost to a religious icon status in some ways And at the same time, they're trying to completely remove their own earthly desires. You know, even little stuff like paying attention to your clothes and hairstyle at all, they're trying to get rid of that. And so, at the Gunma base, in the middle of winter in the mountains, the first of these self-criticism sessions began. So the first two were up for criticism, self-criticism, were Kato Yoshitaka and Kojima Kazuko. Kato was chosen for a session because apparently he cared too much about his clothes and his hair. Kojima was supposedly not trying hard enough to fight her bourgeois thinking. I mean, whatever that even means. But... This gets us to the next batshit level of crazy thinking that Mori, the, the leader, kind of goes to. And again, I'm quoting Igarashi here. Mori Tsuneo initiated the use of beating as a means to facilitate self-critique. By beating the member unconscious, he claimed, other members could bring him to a higher level of self-critique. When he regained consciousness, he would be ready to accept genuine communist subjectivity. Nevertheless, inflicting violence on one of their own was not an easy decision to make. In her later accounts of her involvement in the United Red Army, Nagata Hiroko, the leader of the revolutionary left, who was the United Red Army's uh, number two, recalled that her hands shook uncontrollably after accepting Mori's directive. Sakaguchi Hiroshi, who was another prominent member of the revolutionary left and also a central committee member, also reflected on in his accounts on the situation that he and other members faced. Many of us hesitated to beat Kato. Therefore, once we participated in the beating, we were haunted by the idea that we had to self-critique ourselves even harder. This cloak of morality gave the brutal and merciless beating a scrupulous appearance. To beat a man in order to carry out one's own self-critique, what a perverted logic. So basically, if you hesitated to beat one of your comrades senseless, I mean, literally senseless, you know, like beat a comrade into unconsciousness, if you hesitated to do that, apparently that just meant you weren't hardcore enough. You know, you weren't hardcore dedicated to the cause, which meant that you were probably going to be the next person up for self-criticism, which would involve your getting the crap beaten out of you by your other comrades. And, yeah. Oh, Kato, right? The, the, The guy who worried about his clothes and his hair. Two of the people who were forced to beat the crap out of him were his two younger brothers. However, Kato, despite having the crap knocked out of him by, I'm not sure how many, but at least two of them were his brothers, he did not lose consciousness, which Mori then said, he had an explanation for this apparently, Mori then said that this was because Kato wasn't dedicated enough to truly self-criticize himself, which is just, what? What? And here's how Igarashi interprets the whole situation. And I quote: "The body that does not follow the United Red Army's political program is not revolutionary enough." I just wow, mine, lone. So Kato, right? He just would not lose consciousness, and he was tied up outside in the freezing mountains. For days. Eventually, Mori and Nagata, the number one and number two of the new United Red Army, they would decide that he was in fact dedicated enough to the cause and brought him inside. But, well, he died. Of course. Now, Kato was the first to undergo this violent parody of self-criticism, but he was not the first to die. Nor would he be the last, by a long shot. So another member, um, Ozaki Mitsuo, underwent a similar ordeal and died on December 30th, 1971. So Ozaki Mitsuo, he was the first to die. And Mori, again, used, you know, crazy person logic. And what Mori told the other central committee members was, and again, here's a quote, "...because Ozaki did not try to attain genuinely communistic subjectivity, his spirit was defeated, leading to the corporeal defeat. If one were serious about becoming a revolutionary soldier, one would not die." The defeat of a revolutionary soldier means his death. And, I mean, there's just no... There's no arguing with that logic because there's no actual logic. Um, Again, this is just batshit level craziness going on. And there's another horrible example of all of this. um, And this was Toyama Mieko. And she, a woman, and this is actually kind of important. So, Toyama Mieko was accused of caring too much about her appearance, which, I mean, obviously that just, she, she cared at all about her appearance, which was too much. And again, I'm going to quote from Igorashi's paper. This is a pretty rough one. Um, so, again, quoting from Igorashi, the, the disappearing agency of violence was most clear in the case of Toyama, Mieko, from the Red Army Faction, who was ordered by Mori to beat herself on the 3rd of January 1972. Surrounded by the other members, Toyama repeatedly hit her face with her own fists for 30 minutes until it was a swollen, bloody mess. There was absolutely no way out of the situation in which she found herself. Refusing to beat herself, would surely be construed as evidence of her unwillingness to subject herself to a comprehensive self-critique. On the other hand, accepting the organization's command of self-assistance merely proved that she needed it. After having helped to construct the prison of violence, Toyama dutifully applied the ideological assistance to herself. Yet her self-assistance was deemed insufficient for completing her comprehensive self-critique, and the others rendered helping hands in her deadly endeavor, hitting her, cutting her hair, and finally leaving her tied up until her death on the 7th of January. Toyama's case further demonstrates that, as Otsukao Eiji has cogently argued, the repression of femininity was an integral part of the group's critique of bourgeois identity. I can't say that I know a whole lot about the issue of Mori's way of thinking, but Igarashi points, you know, he 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 makes a pretty convincing argument that Mori was a pretty major misogynist, which doesn't sound all that surprising given the time and the place and the fact that he was the kind of guy who ended up in charge. Those sorts of people are okay, I'm going to I'm going to leave my opinion on that aside for that, but just based on the time and the place. Japanese man born in the period around the end of World War II, I mean, misogyny, sexism sounds pretty par for the course. And one of the vic- other victims, and this is one maybe the worst one, Um, one of the other victims of these self-criticism sessions really illustrates this sexism, misogyny issue going on here. And I promise this is the last one that I will go into any detail on. And so let's talk a little bit about Kaneko Michio, another woman. And again, I'm quoting from Igarashi here. Mori's criticisms against Kaneko initially focused on her alleged antagonism against Nagata and her opportunistic associations with men. Using them as a means to establish her hegemony in the organization, even her husband, Yoshino Masakuni, following Mori's lead, criticized her for having been active in their sexual intercourse. So just, this is m- me, my side note. Apparently, she was she wanted some agency in her sex life and it didn't want to just lie there like like a dead fish. Um, apparently, that was not good. I guess. Um but anyway, so yes so even her husband Yoshino Maskuni, following Mori's lead criticized her for having been active in their sexual intercourse as the organization faced deepening fear of being detected by the authorities the feminine came to be identified not only as a negative condition to be overcome but also as a threat that could undermine the whole revolutionary movement Mori later defined Kaneko's body as the site of ideological battle. Kaneko was pregnant with Yoshino's child at the time, and their fetus was construed as a future revolutionary soldier, the custody of which belonged to the organization. Mori denounced her for treating it like private property or assuming that she would not be killed as long as she was pregnant. The demand for her comprehensive self-critique was transformed into a struggle to transfer the fetus into the possession of the United Red Army. Frustrated with Kaneko's seemingly unwillingness to self-critique, Mori seriously contemplated delivering the baby prematurely by Caesarean section. Accepting this plan, Nagata ordered Aoto Mikio, a former medical student from the Red Army faction, to purchase books on obstetrics. Kaneko's body was deprived of femininity while being transformed into a battleground for the revolutionary future. However, the opportunity for the operation never came. Kaneko died on the 4th of February along with the 8-month-old fetus. And, I mean, just absolutely horrible stuff. Um... So yeah, in the end, 12 of the 29 who started their training in the mountains of Gunma would be dead and one fetus. Um, yeah. So 12 plus a fetus. Beaten to death, starved. I didn't mention that, but in most cases, the, before their beatings, they were deprived of their, their their food for a few days. right? They were left tied up in the elements. Of the mountains in the middle of winter? Now, I know it's not Hokkaido, but the mountains of Gunma in the winter. Not a nice place to be if you don't have somewhere nice and warm to go inside to. If you're tied up to a tree, you can't do that. So, I know that is a real downer of a place to end, but that's where we're going to end... Our story for today. Um yeah, part two. Like I say, this was this was the rough one. Um yeah, so we kind of, you know, episodes one and two here, we kind of got a, a new hope, Empire Strikes Back kind of dynamic going on here. Um, I mean, okay, it, it's it's a new hope if Luke and Han were crazy leftist radicals who hijacked airplanes and then flew to North Korea. But uh, yeah, and okay, enough of the Star Wars. Um that's episode two. That's the that's the tough one. I promise episode 3 not going to be nearly as awful. There are, a couple people die um in a police shootout, but you know, it's not 12 and a fetus. So that's good, right? Yeah. Anyway, that's where we're going to stop today. Please remember to subscribe, rate and review the podcast wherever it is that you like to get your podcasts. Um, we're available on most of the major platforms: Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Pandora. For those of you in the U.S., maybe Canada. Canada? I, I need—I do need to look that up. Um, I can't—I can't use Pandora, but I can use it with a VPN, which is how I got my podcast on there in the first place. Use a VPN. Anyway, if it's if your podcast uh, platform doesn't have the podcast, you, you know. You're probably not listening to this, but whatever. Let me know if there's another podcast platform you'd like me to put it on. I'll see what I can do about that. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at Just Another Cast. Um, I still am sending out history tweets pretty much every day. I think every day. I, I, I'm pretty good about getting them every day. Yeah, follow Just Another Cast. You can email the show at Just Another Jerk Podcast at gmail.com. And you can find all the information. And more someday on the website, tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. And I promise that I will update the website. I will improve the website, add some things. Um, I mean, summer break starts in less than a month. So maybe uh, we'll see. That is all for me today. I am Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.